You're listening to the highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Dolan Perkins Valdez, a best-selling and award-winning author. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. My dad graduated from Tuskegee, and he often told me about the t- Tuskegee syphilis experiment And when I was growing up. He told me two big stories about Tuskegee. One were the Tuskegee Airmen and then the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. He really wanted me to understand the history, not only of medical experimentation, but more specifically medical experimentation in the state of Alabama. I began to read at one point about J. Marion Sims, a doctor who's considered by many to be the father of modern gynecology, but who operated, who developed his procedures on the bodies of enslaved Black women. He often would operate on them outdoors in public for people to watch. And he would develop these very, very painful techniques like a vaginal fistula without giving the women any pain medication. And, you know, I wanted to speak the names of those women, Lucy Zimmerman, Betsy Harris, Anarka Westcott, who I believe, if anything, are the mothers of modern gynecology because they sacrifice their bodies. So my feeling about medical experimentation is that there's a long, deep history in this country of uh, medical experimentation on Black bodies, particularly based behind this racist notion that Black people don't feel pain in the same way. And so I've, I've always sort of known that. But once I started to research this book, I began to really understand more specifically what it has meant for Black women. And I remember with an early draft, one of my readers read it and she said, this is the Tuskegee syphilis experiment book for Black women. This is sort of the equivalent of that because in my book, the girls are being given Depo-Provera shots for birth control, which at this point in 1973 is still considered, it's not approved by the FDA, it's still considered an experimental drug. So, you know, that's sort of how I started to dive into that. You said there's some areas of your own family's history that you don't know. How far back have you been able to trace? I will say I'm much more interested in other people's family histories than I am my own. I haven't done a lot of tracing of my family history, but you know, there's always a generation that does that. So my teenager just got her ancestry kit and swabbed and sent it off recently. And she's always on those ancestry websites, digging up things. So I feel like my daughter's generation, she will be the one to go back and and trace a lot of my family ancestry. But I feel I'm much more interested in other people's stories. I love intricate family histories, but I probably need to do mine while we still have a lot of our elders alive. I probably need to do that. It sounds like she's a a young historian in the making. Going back to this systemic racism in institutions, of course, you know, that didn't end in 1973. It just changes shape. I just had an interview the other day about lead poisoning, you know, in water and in paints and how that disproportionately affects um, Black communities. So it really helps, you know, remind us. What are your broader, I don't know if you think of yourself as an activist, but it makes us think about these things. And what would you like us to pay attention to? going forward? Well, you know, I get asked this question a lot because I think our world is now really surrounded by social justice activism, and it's become so much a part of our vocabulary. But when I first started writing, you know, social justice had not really risen as a concept as powerfully as it has now. Always hesitated to think of myself as an activist because I 
I, while I think literature is very, very powerful, and I think we know that because they try to ban books, if they weren't powerful, they wouldn't be doing that. I also don't overly value the power of literature to change things. I think what literature has the power to do is to create and foment conversations around things. Whether or not you can actually change policies, I don't know. Now, I did say this at a reading the other night in Seattle. A member of the audience came up to me after I answered this question and said, well, I'm a state legislator, and I can tell you that there's power in what you've just shared tonight. And I was like, wow, you know, that was a wonderful moment to think that maybe, just maybe, I recognize uh, the limitations of literature, but at the same time, I'm hopeful that there are these discussions that will be stirred. And so I hope that the discussions in book clubs, if book clubs pick this book, hopefully some, a few will, I hope that they will think about how our reproductive rights are, are not something that we should take for granted, that we should think about how the most vulnerable members of our society are at risk, and that some of the rights that those of us with resources take for granted are not necessarily the same for people who are vulnerable and at risk in our society. And I hope that it also stirs discussions about how we help, right? What are our responsibilities as people who want to make change in the world? And I think one of the things I hope people think about is how we need to listen and how it needs to be a conversation, you know, a sort of not a unidirectional, but a multi-directional conversation so that everyone has a say in what's best for us. That's one of the things that Sybil has to learn in the book, that she stops listening at some point. I mean, she just goes off on her own and starts just doing things, thinking she you know, in her mind. And to the average reader, you would think she's doing pretty good for this family. I mean, she gets them out of that place, et cetera. But there's a line that we have to be careful about because people have the right to agency and to self-definition, to own desires and ambitions. They have the right to that. And that may not align with our desires for them. No, there definitely is an art of living, and I want to say art of living well, because that sounds like one is um, so wealthy, but just making every, I mean, taking pleasure in every moment. And I feel it also must serve you, as you say, you're an intuitive writer, you're intuiting yourself into the past, into people that you didn't get a chance to meet, that when you live this kind of artistic life, when you bring the arts into your daily life, then when you sit at the desk, it's less effortful. I don't know. That's what I imagine. Like it just can kind of bubble out of you in a more freer way. Yes. I'm a big believer in the portal. So like there's a portal that's open when I'm writing. And if I go too long, the portal can sort of close. And I think that there are a lot of people, if you're not in touch with your creative side, your portal can be really, really closed and you have to work to open it back up, right? Taking long walks and just listening to your intuition, doing things that are not so linear, right? And so I really believe in the creative portal. Now, one of the downsides to that portal being open, when I'm open to sort of receiving and being inspired, et cetera, is that I can be very sensitive. You know, I cry easily. My feelings are hurt easily. I don't have a very high tolerance for stress. I I don't want to argue with anybody. I just say, okay, I just want to walk away. So when my portal is wide open and it's not always wide open, but if I'm in the deep depths of a project, it's wide open. I have to be very, very careful about being around certain energies because it can really get inside me. I, you know, sometimes tell my students like protect your portal when it's open, protect yourself. You have to say, 
know, like if someone invites you to lunch and you know that person is going to weigh on your spirit, you have to say no. And then just reschedule it for a time when the portal is a little more closed. So I do think, I do think in that sort of woo-woo spiritual way about creativity and doing those other creative activities helps me to always keep my portal elastic, right? So it, even when my portal's not wide open, because I'm doing these other things like cooking and crocheting and knitting, the portal stays like elastic so that when it's time for me to open it, all I have to do is give it a little push. Does that sound weird? <laughs> no, I you know, I'm an artist and I write, so I know, um, I know it is. I feel like, you know, I remember I visited Gettysburg, Pennsylvania when I was researching for my second novel. I drove up there by myself and I went through the tour. I just feel when I'm on those trips, those sort of research trips, I feel like every sense in my body is buzzing. And I know I'm noticing everything. I like to do them by myself for that very reason. I'm noticing everything. I'm taking everything in. I'm sort of in a trance. And a lot of times because I have kids in a family, I'm on like borrowed time. So I have this real acute sense that I may not be able to get back here. I've got to get it all in right now. So when I go in, I'm listening to everything. I'm watching people's reactions. I have a notebook. I'm taking notes as soon as I get back, maybe not in that moment, but as soon as I get back in my car, I'm writing down what I felt, what I saw, what I experienced. And I honestly think that's like my gift, right? It's like to be able to go into these moments, go into these museums, go into these places and have that world and feel that world. I remember when uh, I went down to Richmond, Virginia once to the Confederate Museum, I was alone and I, I walked in and I had some kind of palpable sense of being a person from that time. I left the museum and I went outside and I sat on the curb. I just was trying to catch my breath and I was thinking, whoa, that was intense. What are the importance of the arts to you and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? That is a really good question because the arts have been so important. And the thing is, when we think of the arts, often the literary arts don't get, in my opinion, the recognition it deserves. I think I would like for young people to think about things other than sort of celebrity arts culture and to really embrace the parts of the arts, whether it be music or dance or theater or literature that are quietly doing the work at the ground. So I would say, Discover writers, discover new writers that everybody's not talking about. Watch independent film. Go to community theater. Go to see a high school dance troupe or a hip hop dance troupe that's not, you know, on the news. Seek out local visual artists, local painters. If you see a street painter, stop and talk to the person and ask them who are their influences and how do they view their art. I love buying street art because you can meet the most interesting people depending on the city that you live in. You can't find it everywhere. So I would just say my message is to find the people who are sort of the unsung heroes of the arts, who are toiling, who are doing things that aren't necessarily getting them on TV, who don't have 5 million Twitter followers or Instagram followers. Find those hardworking artists and help amplify their voices, but at the same time, just support them. And I really hope that our fascination with celebrity culture will start to kind of level out a little bit so that some of these community artists can really regain what I think is the stature that they had before celebrityhood sort of bloomed and blossomed. 
Yeah, that's true. We have to honor our local voices. And, and that's what you do so very well in your fiction. So thank you, Dolan Perkins Valdez, for helping us come to terms with the past so that we may understand, come together and heal. And so they might recognize and correct the injustices taking place today. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you.